This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ plus studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Matt Brim about his book, Poor Queer Studies, Confronting Elitism in the University, published by Duke University Press. In Poor Queer Studies, Matt Brim shifts queer studies away from its familiar sites of elite education toward poor and working class people, places, and pedagogies. Brim shows how queer studies also takes place beyond the halls of flagship institutions, in night school, after a three-hour commute, in overflowing classrooms at no-name colleges, with no research budget, without access to decent food, with kids in tow, in a state of homelessness. Drawing on the everyday experiences of teaching and learning queer studies at the College of Staten Island, Brim outlines the ways the field has been driven by the material and intellectual resources of these institutions that neglect and rarely serve poor and minority students. By exploring poor and working class queer ideas and laying bare the structural and disciplinary mechanisms of inequality that suppress them, Brim jumpstarts a queer class knowledge project committed to anti-elitist and anti-racist education. Poor queer studies is essential for all of those who care about the state of higher education and building a more equitable academy. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited that you're here, too. Um, I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself. Sure. Um, My name, again, is Matt Brim, and I'm a professor of queer studies at the College of Staten Island, uh, or CSI. And CSI is one of the colleges within the City University of New York, or CUNY system. Hmm. And so what I do at at my job is I teach LGBT literature and um, culture and queer studies, um, or sometimes called LGBTQI studies. Great, great. And I, I'm guessing that when you tell people um, that you teach it, that you teach at CSI, you get jokes about the old TV show. <laughs> yeah, especially being in New York. Um, yeah, but, that's right. But you know, the the thing when I say I teach at CSI and I teach queer studies at CSI, they don't know what to ask about first because uh, the the CSI isn't what the the one they're familiar with. And for most people, queer studies is not a discipline or a field that they're familiar with either. I'm going to come back and ask you about that. That's one of the questions I have for you. But first, I wanted to ask you, you know, how you came about writing this book. Sure. So um, this book is really, you can think of it as a, a workplace report almost. And so 
I teach at the College of Staten Island, and this is a, a very working class, working poor, middle class, um, public higher education institution. And we have open access. We serve, um, we offer an associate's degree as well as a four-year degree and master's, and I think we have one um, PhD even. But it's an open access college so that we don't have admissions requirements. We admit 100% of the students. And so I was trying to figure out, the book came from a sort of confusion on my part. I was trying to figure out how to do my job, which is teach queer studies, at a, a college um, that serves a student body um, and that has a, a whole institutional identity that was really different than the places where queer studies is usually taught and the colleges um, and, the, and the institutional identities of the, of the colleges and universities with which queer studies is most readily identified and associated. And, um, and so the, the way I got to that idea, which was basically that I didn't quite know how to do my job as I understood it at this new place where I, where I was working, where I was hired yeah. to work in 2007. Um, and that's because I hadn't ever been at a school like that before. I had gone to undergrad at a, at a small, pretty rich liberal arts school in Indiana where I'm from. And, into a big flagship um, public uh, university, Indiana University. And then I did a postdoc at Duke University. Um, And so obviously in in the South, well, everyone knows Duke, I guess. But Duke is an incredibly deep-pocketed, well-resourced place. And it is also the birthplace of queer studies. And so I found myself coming from a three-year postdoc teaching really smart, really advantaged students, being around faculty who were at the cutting edge, so-called, of queer studies. And then I came to the College of Staten Island, where a college that I had never heard of before and a college that um, the people, the students going to school there, most, almost all of them had not heard of queer studies before. And so that makes for a really interesting problem, which is how does this field that I know from one angle fit in with this college that sits within the university world at a, at a very different angle? And so that's sort of the, the story of how I, I came to think about writing a book called that ended up being called Poor Queer Studies. Makes sense because you, you, you've taught at two different um, institutions on different sides of the spectrum in terms of the number of privileged students, I suppose you could say. Oh man, it's uh, so one of the one of the things we should say is that higher education in the U.S. is incredibly stratified or or mm-hmm. separated by by class status, and that's the mainly the class status of its students, how much money their parents have, socioeconomic status, right. uh, but also their familiarity with college, and so we have a kind of hierarchy or a pyramid. And at the top are the schools that we're all familiar with because we know their names. And when we picture college, a lot of times the the images we're given of what college is come from those campuses. But, uh, and so often it's Ivy League or very selective, um, very, um, uh, as I said, very rich colleges. And, and, And even though we those images come to mind, they're actually a tiny, tiny percentage of where college actually happens in the U.S. The pyramid is much bigger at the bottom. And so, you know, half of our campuses, college campuses in the U.S. are community colleges. And almost half of the students in college are community college students. And 
more people are familiar with the community college experience than any other kind of college experience, even if they didn't graduate. So um, higher ed is a, a re, is really different at the top and the bottom, and so and and really different in terms of the material resources and the material conditions mm-hmm. of how it actually feels and looks and is like to learn and to teach on those campuses. And so you're right that the difference couldn't have been more stark. And it's, you know, it's from little jolts like that. I didn't go looking for this book. It's, I was jolted into thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening? (laughs) Why is Uh this difference in class and material resources so important to the field and to how the field is taught and to how we teach uh, this this discipline of, of LGBTQ studies? Yeah, that, that, it's wonderful when you find something like that, that jolts you, like you said, that you find you want to write about like that. Yeah, and, and I knew that, um, you know, I've always been interested in pedagogy or teaching. And so um, I w- I've wanted to write about students and the classroom experience for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even maybe thought about writing a book earlier about queer pedagogy or, you know, queer mm-hmm. teaching. But mm-hmm. But I didn't have a. I didn't have what ultimately would become the most important thing to me, which is a class and race analysis. Because yeah. not only is is the university stratified by by class, socioeconomic status, but it's deeply, deeply, deeply race sorted. So that um, black students are funneled in one direction, and white students are funneled in another direction, and Asian students are sort of funneled in different directions, and even um, Latinx students are sort of funneled in more diverse directions, even though they're, they're mostly pointed toward the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, and class and race um, are not synonymous in higher ed, but they, they largely um, they, they mirror each other in terms of, uh, uh, of their locations. And we like to make a, a lot out of the fact um, that sometimes there are exceptions to this class and race rule. We like to make a lot out of the fact that oh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, higher ed and and the the schools at the top of the pyramid like to make a make a lot of about how they're expanding and diversifying in terms of class and race, but the statistics, the data actually show that that the improvements are very 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 minor and mostly we're at a we're, we're stuck. There's a we're, we're, especially in terms of of black students, um, yeah, we're, yeah. we've reached a plateau. I really like the image that you used of a pyramid. I uh, I hadn't thought about what you said, but it, it's you know the idea that more of the students, more of the college experiences that people have are at the bottom, which is the largest part of the pyramid. Yeah, and it's where most queers are. Right? So so the other part of that's this, a good point. Like, yeah, like yeah. The, the class and race analysis is uh, drives. Um, drives the book and and um, and when I say class and race analysis I don't I don't bring heavy theory to this book I just I just think about the students in front of me in the classrooms mm-hmm. that we're in and do they have access to technology or not and what do they say are they mothers do they work full-time which many of most of our students do so a class and race analysis actually just means paying attention to the details of your of your work site right for me that's yeah. what it means yeah um, but but the, those details are also there there are a lot of poor queer people and most queer people are poor because most people are poor in the U.S. And um, and that's the, the the same in education, except the poorest people in our country don't get into higher education at all, right? And so that's right. So yeah. one of the one of the 
the blank spots in this book is attending to the queer people who never matriculate. Ah, maybe that's another book for you down the line. Yeah, that's right. Maybe. That's right. I, I wanted in the, in the beginning of the book, you, you say that um, you're frequently asked these two questions. And so I thought I just had to ask them to you to see what you said to people. But you said sure. that um, people often ask you when you say that you teach queer studies, people say, what is queer studies? And then they follow up with, why do you teach at CSI rather than Columbia or NYU? So what do you say to them? So when I talk about my field, I, I sort of do a, a, a bit of a historical answer, and that is uh, queer studies started out um, called something else. It started out being called gay and lesbian studies. And that in one version or another has been going on for a pretty long time, um, even within higher ed uh, since mid-century we in, in the 60s and certainly 70s. Um, and so people, gay and lesbian people, and some others uh, were trying to think about, well, what is our history? Um, you know, how do we research ourselves? And you know, that's incredibly important work. And then, and then a little bit later in the in the 80s and 90s, we got to say, well, queer studies doesn't have to just be about gay and lesbian people because gay and lesbian people don't. Um, that's not the extent of non-heterosexual experience. And, um, and we started questioning our identities stable. Uh, I, we know that sexual identity changes over time and over history and in one, one's own personal life. And we also became much more clear about one's never just LGBT or, or, or queer. One is always uh, raced and classed and one is from a particular place. Um, and, and so, all the intersections. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so now queer studies is really attentive, or at least it always needs to be attentive to all the kinds of differences that make a difference to people who do identify as, as queer. Um, mm -hmm. And so so that's the, the answer I sort of give. And, um, uh, and just in terms of my own work in the field, I, my first book was on James Baldwin. And so I'm really interested in, um, in black queer studies. Um, and then when and so once you once you do work in like black queer studies or latinx studies it, you can't just sort of go back to whatever kind of queer studies you were doing before because you've seen how important those other registers and and frameworks are to the field um and so that's just a sort of encouragement to maybe undergrads and grad students to, to not think about doing queer studies um you know as a thing in and of itself separate from critical race studies and and mm -hmm. um working class studies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the, um, why don't I teach at Columbia? <laughs> so, <laughs> they, not, they haven't offered you a million dollars, right? <laughs> they have not yet. Yeah, yeah, any day yeah. now. I, I, I move. <laughs> so maybe it's, it's in the uh, mail. Right. Um, you know, the question isn't why don't I teach at Columbia? The question is who teaches at Columbia? And the people who teach at Columbia went to Columbia <laughs> or uh, another Ivy League school. So uh, one of right. the things about Ivy League schools and very selective schools isn't just that they admit the richest students, which is true, and isn't just that they pay faculty more than any other college, which is the case with Columbia, but they hire they, they only hire. Now, I say only, and somebody's going to come up with an exception. <laughs> That's let's, right. Let's, let's, let's say that the rule is the rule. And so when we try to overlook the rule, we're motivated to do that. I want to say the rule is the rule. Mm -hmm. Columbia and Ivy League schools hire from Ivy League schools. 
And that is, why is that? Is that because Ivy League schools, graduate programs are producing the best PhDs? Well, that's what we're told. That's the myth of meritocracy. And we're told that all of these selection mechanisms that allow people to rise to the top, those selection mechanisms have good, um, good processes by which the best are promoted and hired and advanced. And I am here to tell you that that is not true. <laughs> um, but it is, it is one of those things that it's, it's very tough to crack into that shell of um, self-perception around mm-hmm. what is the best in education. Um, and I don't come from that kind of background. And um, so trust me, if Columbia wanted to hire people who were not graduates from the Ivy League, they could hire people that are a lot better than I am. So this isn't about me not getting into Columbia, right? This is about Columbia excluding the kinds of professors um, that they also exclude at the level of the student body. Well, you know, it's interesting as you say that because you really see the same thing in politics. I, I remember in the last presidential election, you know, um, pundits, political pundits talking about the number of presidents who had come from Ivy League, Ivy, Ivy League schools. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, the Supreme Court. Right. That means right. That's, that's right. This whole yeah. this whole club in the Supreme Court. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, um, you know, what that does, the reason that makes a difference and, and, and I'll just bring it back to the, the book for a second. Yeah, the of course. The difference is because the ideas you have about yourself and the world and the people around you are informed by the people around you and the, the micro worlds that we live in um, tell us a lot, often through implicit messaging and lessons about what is good and right and how, and just true, what is real. And, um, so when you have uh, the pandemic, for example, you have the very first person who came out with a big national megaphone was the president of Brown University and Brown University is an Ivy League school and had a, a big front page story in the New York Times. Now, it's not easy to get a front page story in the New York Times, right? You already have to have a megaphone in your hand That's right. that makes your voice really loud. And that megaphone looks like money. Uh, and power. And so when the president of Brown University comes out and says, here's how universities have to reopen and here's what we need to do. And this was very early on. This was spring of last year. Mm-hmm. Everything that she said required tons of resources. And yet she was talking about college generally, not just about Brown, but you have to afford, you have to buy tests. You have to um, have a population that you can house if they get sick in some somewhere. What about community colleges? What about under-resourced colleges? I mean, there were all of these salute, quote-unquote solutions to this universal problem that only would work for not the universe of college students and campuses, but for only the tiny tip-top of colleges and campuses. And it turns out those solutions weren't great anyway because colleges, students just shouldn't have gone back. That's right, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was the, it was the mindset that you would know what is best for all because you have been told that the knowledge that you have, the world that you see, um, and the solutions to the world that you see are the solutions that work for everybody. And that is one of the downsides of being in a tiny little, I call it provincial, having tiny provincial rich knowledge is that you think the, the reality is as you see it, but the reality for most people is is 
is not that at all. And so the, the world of queer ideas, insofar as it's shaped only at high class, very elitist, very exclusionary institutions, actually does, my, my question in the book is, how much does that actually teach us a, about queer life? Is there not yeah, knowledge yeah. that comes from below that we need to pay attention to? Knowledge that, that we, may, we are creating, but we don't have the big megaphone to shout to the world, listen to this, it's important. Well, this, that, that, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, um, you know, you talk, obviously, in the title of the book, you have poor queer studies, but you also talk about rich queer studies. And I, I wondered if you could, you know, tell our listeners what the difference is and, and how you see this relating to what you started talking about, the state of affairs for queer studies in higher education. And I just quoted you there. <laughs> so, rich queer studies is sort of the, I, I use that to mark the institutional history of this field of queer studies. Now, rich queer studies has given us incredible and a wealth of knowledge, amazing ideas, right? There are these luminaries in the field who yet have been at, at um, exclusive and, and, and selective colleges, but it doesn't mean their ideas are bad, right? It, their ideas have actually been incredibly powerful for a wide range of people, even people at colleges like mine, we use those ideas, we adapt them, we make use of them. And so I want that flow of ideas to continue to come to us, that flow is down. Um, but those ideas can't stand in for the whole. And so what needs to happen too, is that rich queer studies needs to be informed by the ideas happening uh, in my classroom. So rich queer studies doesn't know, for the most part, what um, a commuter student, a queer commuter student knows about um, the experience of, of being uh, a student. Rich queer studies doesn't know what it's like when you have not just some returning students, but you have many returning students, 50, 60 year old mothers who come back and sit in your queer, queer studies classroom, not, not as single individual mothers by themselves, but there are more than, there are multiple mothers in every class. What does queer studies know about how, what they bring to the classroom and what their ideas, um, how they can inform the field? And let me give you an example. So one of the great things about um, queer studies happening at uh, the top of the academic pyramid is um, they've, they've given us really good um, ways to think about language and language practices. And often they're um, at um, the forefront of, of thinking about what words we are we end up using in the field and to define the field and to define ourselves. Um, and all of that is really valuable. The, at the bottom of uh, the pyramid, or let me say, be a little more descriptive, if you have working class students, if you have first generation students, if you have a lot of black and brown students, um, language in their lives can operate really differently uh, and yeah. does operate really differently than somebody telling you the right word to say now is this word, uh, right? Um, as, as the most progressive kind of advanced knowledge we have about queerness. Um, this is generational as well, but it's class and race based. And so if, um, if sexual knowledge, helps us to understand ourselves. And this is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And a certain kind of sexual knowledge is being produced um, along class lines. Then people in those classes are going to think, are going to believe that they have, uh, are going to have certain kinds of sexual knowledge that is not shared by people 
necessarily who are having a different class and race experience. And so what they think of as saying, the words they think of as maybe the right words or the progressive words uh, or the radical words are words that sound, um, that ring a little hollow in ears of people who have different kinds of sexual knowledge that help them get through life. And even if it's just cope, <laughs> the, that language, um, that that sort of class and race-based language is is um, is how we make it through. And to be told that we can't have these tools, these language tools around queerness, that have helped us make it through and cope and survive, and to be told that from people who have a lot of advantages, um, it just doesn't work. It's interesting because it it reminds me of. Um you know, writers talking about the rural and um, big city divide mm. among queer people and, and in queer studies itself. Yeah, there's some great work done in rural queer studies. I mean, you know a ton of it, right? You've done it. And um, and uh, I'm for, as I said, I'm from Indiana. And, you know, you sort of can never leave home. Um, I mean, I'm never going back to Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know. your state. The Hoosier State, um, which is maybe more south than the geography would imply. Yeah, definitely. It's a red state. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, uh, rural queerness and urban queerness have whole different, can have whole different narratives about what it means to be queer. So, like, there's this whole kind of um, narrative about queer people needing to escape to the city. And this was yeah, my case, I, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm not undermining this, this idea that queer people need to escape to the city to find people like themselves and to experience a kind of critical mass that allows them to mobilize around identity and to be political and, and to just live a, a life in community um, of, of many other people like themselves. And that doesn't often happen in rural settings, but that doesn't mean that, that rural queers don't have really intentional and valuable um, queer experiences that they prefer and that, and that help them live them, their lives, um, you know, like not leaving their families, uh, not leaving the, the kind of um, working class environment that defines most of their life and that um, informs their queer life. Maybe they have kids. Maybe a lot of, of rural people were, were um, with, with, uh, uh, um, in heterosexual relationships and had kids and maybe they don't want to leave their right. kids, you know, um, rural people tend to have, uh, uh, kids early, um, before they ha- can come out. You see this with, um, uh, black women in the South. There's a lot of great work around black lesbians in the South who are staying yeah, in the South. Yeah. Right. And there are lots of reasons for that, including, uh, family reasons. Well, and you know, in, in ways, um, you have such a nice chapter in your book, um, called Poor Queer Studies Mothers. And there seem to be similarities in some of the things that I, you know, that at least I've experienced interviewing people um, in the rural South. And I, I just wondered if, you know, you could talk about that chapter a little bit and why you decided to include a whole chapter on Poor Queer Studies Mothers. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that's chapter four in the book, but really that's the heart of the book. That's where the mm-hmm. book started. And so it just takes a while to get readers to the point where they would be able to look with me and believe what I'm saying and believe my students, right? Yeah, it's, I, yeah. I think people won't necessarily be able to um, believe um, students 
and working class and working poor students right away and think that they're, what they're saying is actually valuable and, and knowledge producing. So it took me a while to get to that chapter. The chapter is, was so poor queer studies mothers. I actually just mean, I have a lot of mothers in my classes, like women oh, yeah. who are mothers, right? right. And I have a lot of, of parents, but I focus on mothers. And sometimes, of course, mothers do most of the care work. And we have a lot of single moms. And we, we know that um, sometimes um, our, our, our students who are mothers um, can't find childcare, or sometimes there is domestic abuse in the home and they need to get the child out. And they also are, have this incredible life of the mind and they're college students and they want to think and they want to learn. And the classroom is a place where they feel good and safe and are able to articulate their good ideas and share what the work they've done for the class. And they don't want to give that up. And why should they? And so sometimes those two things, having to be a mother or being a mother and being a student and wanting both of them, um, those come to a point where they, th- those two things have to happen at the same time in the same place, like in the classroom. So mothers bring their kids to, to class, <laughs> is yeah. what I'm saying. And I guarantee this does not happen like at a place where your class has no mothers in it, right? <laughs> if, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying there's a judgment about mothers at colleges that don't enroll many students who are mothers, I'm saying that experience doesn't exist there. And so you're not able to think through that experience and listen to that mother in the classroom. And you're not able to listen to how the peers respond when a mother brings a child to class. And they respond incredibly generously and inventively. And, um, you know, we don't say dirty words in front of kids usually. And yet in queer (laughs) studies, we say a lot of words that a kid might think are dirty, right? We say gay words and we sometimes we use, you know, words that are, we have discussions about, should we use this word? Is it an okay word to use? Uh. Well, we can have those discussions out loud in class usually because we've created a space where we trust each other and we're adults, but you bring a kid in and, you know, sometimes a four-year-old, you don't want to say those words out loud. And so my students start to spell those words because they think we still need to do the work of our class but we need to change how we're doing the work of our class because there's a changed environment with a kid here. And I mean, how creative and brilliant is this? And then once you start spelling quote unquote dirty words, that allows a whole, um, a whole thought process of, Oh, is this word a dirty word? Should I be spelling this word? What do we say in front of a kid is queer, is queer bad is gay bad. So there's this whole intellectualizing and, and rethinking of our, process of using language and that does, that would not have happened this is just one example there's so many that wouldn't have exa- happened if that kid hadn't been in the room well it's interesting because you know so many at least you know going to school well, through my college experience so many um professors would not allow mothers to bring their children and if they didn't have child care they, they would say you're gonna have to you know find another way so i just you have a different philosophy on this it sounds like well Think about this. So if you say to the mother, you can't bring your kid in, then the mother's not in the room. Right. If you say, right. to, a, if you say to a student, you, if you're more than five minutes late, you can't come in the room. I'm locking the door. Or you, you want to get so many tardies. Well, if you're in New York City, we have an incredibly defunded public transportation system. Our uh. students get to campus on public transportation. If because our Democratic governor has not funded the MTA, our public transportation, Mm -hmm. if the buses and the trains are late all the time, then when we tell a student you can't come to class if you're a little late, what we're actually telling them is that we aren't, that the MTA is their problem. (laughs) We give that problem to them as though it's theirs. 
or we're asking them to be hyper responsible, leave way, way early, and and therefore maybe if the train does run on time, get to campus super early. Why are why did they have is it my job to tell a student how that they have to get to campus super early to leave home super early just to get to my class? That's a huge imposition. Um, and uh, so there are all these, and this is totally a class issue, right? For our students who drive, and we have a lot of students who drive, is the parking on campus such that when they drive to campus, they can find a parking spot to get to class? Or because our campus is so poor, do have we not provided the structural capacity to, for them to make their way to class on time because there's enough parking? You know, it's, it's all about the material conditions in which we live. That leads up to and informs the classroom experience. Yeah, and you the, the issue that you bring up about how privilege, how someone's privilege enables them to have even more privilege in higher education, it, it just really stuck with me as I read your book. I don't think rich queer studies has confronted its own advantages at all, almost mm-hmm. at all, mm-hmm. in these terms. I, I hear students i hear professors talking about their students who they care very much about these are these are great students i think these are probably generous students my ones at my students at duke were i think these are generous faculty members i think it's much easier to ignore the 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 role that the material conditions of your work site create when those material conditions become invisible because they all work, because the classroom is heated, because the window goes up or down, because there's parking, because there's transportation. I think when all of the structural components become invisible because they work, it becomes harder to think about how the structural components, the material conditions actually inform one's work life. And part of our work life is teaching and part of our work life is research. At CSI, none of that is invisible. Every bump, you feel every bump along the way to your education. Yeah, you know, but the students I, I work with in counselor education in our diversity course is one of the things we talk about. And I'm sure this, a lot of different, you know, um, programs talk about this, but, you know, how someone can get so stuck in the worldview, it's like they have blinders on. And it sounds like that's what you're saying, that when somebody is not forced to remove those blinders and see the other side of things, they, they just never even realize they're there. And there's an ugly uh, other side to that, and that is that we know that um, poor students who are admitted to um, selective colleges, um, you know, what we normally think of as good schools, or the, the schools that occupy the top of the, the best Fairman, list, yeah. the, ranking, the rankings, yeah. We know that when they get there, they very quickly understand that it's a place that they don't understand, most of them. Mm, yeah. um, now, some poor students... Um, uh, as Tony Jack writes in his book, The Privileged Poor, went to, um, were able to go to boarding schools and sort of uh, rich prep schools. They got often scholarships there. And so they, they have more cultural knowledge of what it's like to be in that environment. But a lot of poor students don't have um, enough familiarity to know how to be in that place. Yeah. And they're incentivized not to talk about that, right? So... It's, uh, we know that students at um, a, a variety of schools, in, including a great liberal arts school, Williams, poor students have started um, uh, Twitter feeds about how they can't talk about being poor at Williams because they're ashamed of it. And not just that mm-hmm. they're ashamed of it, but that they are shamed by others about it. 
And so when the dark side is that it's not just that there is an invisible kind of um, floaty holding rich queer, scholar, queer colleges up, right? There's this, there's this buoy that allows you to do your work, but you act like the buoy isn't there. But there's also a pressure on the people who can bring a different voice not to voice their experience. And that is just, uh, and that's called class quietude. And it's, and it's just a, a classist dynamic um, that, that, that I certainly can't tell those colleges how to fix. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of um, just really becoming aware when I was in graduate school that I had so much privilege because my father was a is a or was a you know retired college professor, and so I knew the resources I needed if I needed them. I knew where to go because mm-hmm. I learned this growing up. But then when I'd meet first generation students, I was always I was surprised initially that they didn't know where to go, like things like financial aid, because they'd never been told about it before. Yeah, yeah, and um, and that is a that's a problem of problem for higher ed generally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of what I think about in poor queer studies is that big framework of the higher education problem. But then I also want to think about how those of us who are in different fields, different disciplines, in my case, queer studies, but maybe you're in um, sociology, or maybe mm-hmm. you know, you're in mental health counseling, or maybe you're mm-hmm. um, in, in economics. I want to think about within that higher ed picture of advantage and disadvantage, how do our own fields fit within that are are the ideas that we have how are the how is the knowledge we're creating how are the pedagogies that we're taught participating in that class stratification class quietude racism uh racialized capitalism right that that uh says um to to some people take take on a ton of debt you have to take on a ton of debt in order to get to ahead. And if you're black, you ha- are under a special pressure to take on extra debt because in education, you have to get a higher education than a white person without that education. Yeah, so yeah. how? what are all of the ways, um, not only the higher ed is setting the framework, but within our own fields of, of queer studies, um, um, you know, we used to, to think and still do about queer studies being white. And but silently white being done by white academics, and I'm I'm white. I identified as a, as a white gay man, um, and we didn't think about how is the field actually maintaining the structural racism of the university, right? Um, it was just sort of implicitly white, or the whiteness was not um, was not seen as a quiet problem, right? It was yeah. just seen as not voiced, and and so, and now we know not to do that, but. Queer studies hasn't yet fully reckoned with, and I think hasn't really begun to fully reckon with, the way that we uphold class norms within the field and therefore support upholding class norms within higher education generally. Yeah, and this might be a good place to ask you if you would talk a little bit about, um, I think it's chapter two, you you list some myths of of rich queer studies, and I wondered if you could you know talk about some of those myths without giving all of them away because we want people to still have you know something they want to go back and um, get the book, of course. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's this thing called the job market. Um, you know, I, you're going to get a PhD and then you're going to become a professor, right? And that's how it sort of used to be, and it sometimes happens, but it, that's not the normal story anymore. Um, and 
one of the, I think, assumptions that has, I think it's being broken down a little bit now, but I think it still persists at elite schools is that um, the, if you go to Yale, um, that means you're brilliant and you come out of Yale more brilliant and the, that brilliance is testified to by your brilliant advisor at Yale who will uh, write you a letter of recommendation that will say you're brilliant. Right? <laughs> but, yeah. but so the problem is that what is getting the person the job? Is it proof that is it that they've proved they're brilliant or is it a kind of very insular network um, of people and institutions sort of verifying and um, locking in the myth that this person is brilliant. Um, we know that there's a lot of work that comes out of top schools that's amazing. We also know there's a ton of academic work that comes out of top schools that is absolutely mediocre. So why is that? Why is it possible the mediocre work comes out of the places where the people who produce that work are the most well-resourced. They're given the most support in doing that work. When there are people, uh, and again, people will think that this is sour grapes on my part, and that's fine. It's, but there are people who I know at my college um, or at other CUNY schools, at community colleges within the CUNY system, who are producing well, incredible work, right, that doesn't get called brilliant in the same way. Well, you – and. Um... I don't remember what chapter it is, but you actually list. Um, I guess you know you have this whole list of um, publications that um, faculty at CSI have published, and you talk about CSI's storied queer background. Um, you know, and I, I think it's it's really fascinating. How did that end up happening there? Well, you know, so this book got written by me, my name's on it, but this is a product of thinking through my my job with other people who who work at CSI with me as well as with students. So this is really, you know, and so that chapter I was trying to really say, there's a, a collaborative nature of queer studies work that's being done here, um, but so much of it under the radar. And and so I wanted to, to take the book and sort of uh, tweak the form that, that we normally see academic books take. And that is putting the bibliography at the end of the book. What I did is I took all the queer work happening by faculty at my college, College of Staten Island, and I put it within the chapter where I was yeah, talking about yeah. the faculty, the queer faculty at College of Staten Island, because I really wanted to highlight it. And a lot of people have said to me, well, that's really boring looking at a bibliography. <laughs> but other people have said, oh, wow, that's a really long bibliography. Look how much work has been done in queer studies at the College of Staten Island. Why isn't the College of Staten Island well known as a place to go to, to learn uh, and teach queer studies. And, and that's, that's what I thought when I saw that bibliography. I was so impressed. Yeah, me too. I mean, like, I'm, <laughs> I mean that, you know, that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with these incredible colleagues that I have, that I'm lucky to have, um, and who have fostered um, you know, my own growth there. And, um, and we rely on each other to do that. But a lot of that is unsung, or at least it goes under the radar. And, and the real problem with that is that not that we don't get really high paying jobs, it's that the ideas that that are so vital that come out of teaching the whole people that come out of thinking about what public higher education should be or that higher education should be public. It, the problem is that those ideas often don't get shouted out to the world and redistributed 
by the publishing mechanisms that tend to reinforce the hierarchies and academic elitism that we that we see. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have so many questions to ask you, and I think we have about 15 more minutes, so I better I better sure. jump into the next one real quick because I could talk forever on some of these topics um, with you. I, I, you had this great line in Chapter 3, um, or this great term. You, you talk about that you want to prepare students to, quote, cause queer trouble. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure. So, I, I, and, and I want them to cause, be able to cause queer trouble at a particular place. I want them to be able to cause queer trouble at work. So one of the things that is true of students at CSI and at almost all colleges is that our students are also workers. So they come to class from work, they go to work from class, um, they come to class only at night because they work during the day, they come to class only on the weekends because they work during the week, and often they're full-time workers. Um, and so when queer studies, as it often does, does not uh, thinks about um, a kind of class rebellion or a kind of class analysis that is is radical. It's for um, it's anti-capitalist, which I of course agree with, right? Well, almost to, and almost to the point that some of those critiques don't think about actual working people's lives. They think about the larger system of of um, you know, late capitalism. But when you're teaching queer studies to a group of students who is going who just came from work and you're trying to make queer studies relevant to their lives, you're not doing that by only making it relevant to them as queers and who they're having sex with and what their gender is, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're making it relevant to them as whole people. And it happens to be true that the whole people in our classroom, part, one part that makes them whole is that they're workers and that mm -hmm. they're workers already and that they're going to college to get jobs so that they will earn a little bit more money as yeah. workers in the future. Now, if queer studies doesn't say how can we help those students on the job? How can we give them queer knowledge or queer strategies, um, a queer perspective that will allow them to go to work at the toy store in the mall, as my student says, uh, one of them said, and, and when the mother comes in and her little boy wants a quote unquote girl's doll and the mother shames that kid, that girl, uh, my, my student and the, the worker is, can think, okay, can I intervene here? Right? It's mm -hmm. very hard to intervene within fam in families, right? Families are sort of off limits somehow, but what could I do? And so that's huh. a problem she has at work, and it's a problem she sees and that she wants to be able to fix, or at least to try to fix, but maybe doesn't know how. Queer studies can give her a lot of information about how queerness and sexuality is privatized within families and how it's nobody else's business. It can give her a lot of information about how um, gender works in, in kids and what gender identity is and how to talk about gender identity and how to think about how people have, and parents especially, have a lot of panic around their child's non-normativity around gender and sexuality and what the histories of that. You know, it can just enable, not that the student would then teach the mother, but it can enable a kind of really well-informed reaching out. And that mm. the, down, the danger is that reaching out will be rejected. And of course that happens. Um, work sometimes isn't a safe place to make trouble, but they're going to work after class one way or the other, and they want their work lives to be better. And for many of them, they think their work lives and they know their work lives would be better if they have queer knowledge on their side. I absolutely love that. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, 
it just makes me think about how what you're doing is bringing, trying to bring queer studies out of the ivory tower and bring it into the real world. Well, what's amazing isn't isn't how that happens when I teach my students and really teach with the students. What's amazing is what happens when the students go and teach people in their home communities. Now, this oh, is a yeah, yeah. surprise to me. Students go home from my classes. Of course, they live with their families still. It's a commuter college. Most of them live with their families, um, which is a big difference from uh, elite education. And yeah. I, I sort of assume, this is my fault for assuming this, that <laughs> their, their queer studies class would be this hidden away thing that they don't talk about with their parents or their coworkers or their friends. What I learned yeah. is that many students really love becoming the teacher of queer studies to people outside the classroom and off campus. They're very interested in what in, in the ideas. They say that the people they're talking to are interested, not that they agree, but that, that these discussions are sort of uh, there, right? They're, they're ripe to be had. And, um, and so one of the assignments I give students is to talk about everybody you've taught queer studies to this semester that is not a student in this queer studies class. Huh. And, the, and the answers that come back are just fascinating. And sometimes they're a little depressing, but mostly it shows students taking um, taking charge uh, and uh, of this knowledge. And as you know, as a teacher, you learn when you teach. That's <laughs> so, right, yeah. And so they're not just, they're, they're really reorienting themselves to what that knowledge means in their lives. I love that. It's, it's, it's really, it's very creative too on your part. Um, how is this related if it is to the term you use queer fairing? I'm not sure if I said that right. Queer fairing. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> fairying, like a, that's fairy, it. That's it yeah. yeah. Like a boat. Um, and obviously I'm sort of playing off the idea of the, 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 language the fairy. Of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, fun. Which is, which is some of that outdated language, but you know, <laughs> within gay communities, we use that that word all the time oh, yeah, yeah. about ourselves and our friends. But okay. So the end of this book is tr sort of my effort. I think a lot of the book seems like I'm pitting rich and poor colleges against each other. And maybe the discussion we've had today, I've, I've done that as well. Well, poor colleges are never going to win that fight. <laughs> like we, there's a reason things are like they are. And that's because power and money win and uh, because they're allowed to structure our institutions. So we can't just have we can't just have a sort of animosity between rich and poor. We can't just say that you're not looking at me down here and you're bad for doing that. Uh, we we can't just have have rich queer studies saying, um, well, I'll pat you on the head and, and say that's yeah you're doing really good work there, but I would never teach there, right? Because I'm doing real scholarship or whatever. We can't we can't have that. And when you when you talk to other queer studies scholars in person. You know, we're not we're not those kind of ogres that take one side or the other, <laughs> but <laughs> we are very much constrained by the structures we're in. And so, if the structure uh -huh. says we're, we're kept apart and we're kept opposed, then we need to say, not do I have good feelings about you, and let my good feeling about you, who who's very differently situated, make me stop saying you need there's a problem here. But can we work together to overcome or, or deconstruct? the hierarchy. And so queer fairying means how can we go back and forth, fairy back and forth between different class and race locations in higher education from top schools to bottom schools and of course middle schools. And one, one big criticism of the book, which is really valid, is that I don't talk about middle schools that much, but uh, I, I've 
I've exposed the extremes because I, I ultimately want to say that the ex, the ex, the rich and poor need to be trading and sharing the kinds of knowledge yeah, that we create yeah. and the kinds of resources that we have. And those don't necessarily look like the same kinds of resources. It's not all trading money um, or ideas. Um, but if we could go back and forth between each other's work sites and see what's happening there and share what our students are saying with each other, is there a way that we could sort of thread together the ideas um, or at least give each other an expanded vision of how, uh, of, of what the next um, years of queer academic thought could be um, mm -hmm. rather than siloed off from each other. And, um, and the, the fairy as a symbol um, comes directly from my experience teaching at the College of Staten Island because I take the fairy. There's a oh, fairy. Yeah. Oh, this yeah. Staten Island fairy, this big orange thing. If you've seen Working Girl, you've seen this fairy. Yeah, uh, that's right. Art. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking about when you said that. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. And I take that ferry, and that ferry goes back and forth between Staten Island, where my job is, and Manhattan, the rich island where I live. And so uh, I know that going back and forth between different kinds of places changes the way you see the world, because I do that on a daily basis. And so if we can move, not necessarily make everything into one, but if we can move more efficiently and more effectively and more um, regularly back and forth between the places, what will that movement create? Uh, so, so many metaphors there. That's yeah. really, really yeah. great metaphors. I, I wanted to ask you um, also about, um, I think it's chapter five, you talk about reading for queer blackness. And I wondered if you could tell the listeners about that. Well, the first thing I want to say is everybody should run out and get this uh, collection of short stories called Counter Narratives by John yeah. King. And you uh, talk John about King, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so this book changed my life. This book, <laughs> not just, I read a lot of black, uh, gay, and queer literature, uh, having done all the work on Baldwin and just sort of been in the field. Um, but Keane's book, Counter Narratives, um, did something, sort of made me think, I don't know how to read. I don't know how to read what he's writing. He does this deeply historical, deeply fine-grained um, storytelling about um, black and queer and um, and uh, Latinx lives across history. Mm. And the story, the way he tells story, made me recognize that oh, so much of what we read is actually. Um, relies on this underlying storytelling principle of being pro-white uh, or being pro-straight. And those messages come at us all the time. We actually don't have uh, strategies and stories that tell us how to learn the strategies of how to read for a pro-black or pro-queer um, protagonist or, or, or even not protagonist, um, just sort of possibility right? Mm -hmm. A story that tells me, without saying it explicitly, that black queerness is a, a creative possibility in the world, and, and it always has been, is a story that I have not, have, was not raised uh, to be familiar with. And it was, I wasn't raised not just in my youth, but in my formal education, K-12, college, and grad school. And so, in other words, that's knowledge, that's a kind of illiteracy that has um, been created around the inability of the publishing world really to put books in our hands that are able to, to, to tell, uh, to, to use pro-black, 
pro-queer narratives as their underlying structure. That must be so eye-opening for your students and exciting um, for your students in your classes. I think so. I mean, it's they, they see how excited I am by it, right? Um, yeah. And, and first of all, John Keane's book is so amazing that um, it does so much of that work. It does that jolting work that we talked about earlier. Um, it does so much of that jolting out of our normal way of reading and our normal frames for understanding um, eroticism, desire, race, that um, it, it, it becomes exciting in and of itself. It's very difficult, that book. <laughs> but uh, it becomes yeah. exciting in and of, it, of itself. And then when you get to share that excitement in a classroom, that's where teaching and learning become just just runs away with itself and, um, hmm. and the contributions among it people who are excited to be reading in a new way. Um, and of course, a lot of students at, at, at CUNY are, are black and brown students. And so I think it means something special to them to be able to not just see themselves in terms of there's a representation of a black character, a brown character, but to see, um, uh, to see books that don't weave whiteness under the story as the goal, the ideal, the endpoint, the standard. Mm. Yeah, you all in that chapter, you also cite E. Patrick Johnson, and I hit. Um, I guess using that term "jolted," I, that's how I felt when I read his book "Sweet Tea." Yeah, Black Gay Men of the South is just um, such a wonderful book. E. Patrick is actually one of the biggest influences on my scholarship because he's never written anything that doesn't think about class as well as race and queerness. Like every bit of scholarship that he does integrates that, and "Sweet Tea," and then. Honeypot, right? Honeypot, yeah. yeah. In the South. Yeah, I'm sure that those books for you are um, just really fun to read, given your own uh, similar work. Um, yeah, I think you. I think you called him the architect of poor black studies. I think you said he's one of them. Yeah, and a very important one, and came up with queer studies, which is a word that um, how his grandmother pronounced queer. And it's important yeah, to say, yeah. oh, so he's not just taking queer as it's normally heard and said and meant, but he's routing. The great queer ideas we've been given in lots of places, um, but but he's saying the way he first learned about queerness and the and the framework for understanding all these great new ideas is his um, rural poor black upbringing in North Carolina and mm -hmm. hanging on to that vision of class and race as a way to engage with new ideas that don't necessarily start there, um, finding ways to to put his own experience and conversation. He's just a master of it. Yeah, and you know, coming back to your book, I think for the listeners who maybe aren't really familiar with queer studies, I think that you're gonna find that um, you learn so much about what's out there just from reading this book because of the different authors that you cite and the um, different topics that you consider. <laughs> Yeah, well, the you know my my real goal is not for people to say I'm going to be interested in this book because I take queer studies classes or I know what queer studies is, right? I want people to understand that there is a kind of thinking that that I'm doing in my little world of the university that's really um, hopefully portable and adaptable um, to other places where we should be thinking about how class and race structure uh, the institutions that we're in, right? Religion and government and even family. And, um, you know, the the ideas that, that I try to talk about in the book aren't ideas that I want people 
to say this is the template and I have to use this idea exactly as is. It's I want people to see ways that the ideas can be um, uh, malleable and useful for them in their own ways. And so um, it is a, it is definitely a book about poor queer studies, but the subtitle is Confronting Elitism in the University. And Confronting Elitism, if there's nothing else from that title that makes sense, I think is a we're in a moment where people say that is necessary work in every aspect of society and culture. We, elitism is one of the things that's choking, um, that's choking so many people in this country. Um, the preference for the richest, the assumed, um, the assumed superiority um, of people with advantage. It's uh, and 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 the blatant um, use of that power. Uh, and, and privilege to harm the poor, right? We're thinking about right now um, unionization and uh, the uh, Amazon um, yeah. in Alabama. Um, the only reason that everybody's not on the side of that union is because there are very rich people sending out very powerful messages about um, uh, how Amazon and Bezos are good and how he is the goal. We all want to be like him and how factory workers um don't know what's best for them and they aren't a model uh, that we should aspire to and that's insane yeah yeah and I, I think you i think you say in the book that queer studies is the lens through which you look at this whole issue in higher education and and obviously in the country as a whole yeah i mean it's um it, as i said higher that there's there's no inst- in my opinion there's no institution that's better than higher education at this unfair work of sorting people out by class and race. Um, the, the sociological data, it's just staggering. Um, but higher ed um, is just one of the institutions that does that in our country. And you mentioned earlier, you know, government. Um, mm-hmm. but, but if we found all the ways um, that uh, the, the wealth the wealthy aren't just privileged, but that, that pri- their privilege is, ma- is maintained and that that maintaining of privilege seems normal and right. Um, that's, I want to undercut that within the university. I want, to, um, I want to, to privilege other people and places and classes and, and races than um, are, are usually the privileged ones. Not because I'm PC. I mean, I am PC, but, but, <laughs> but because there's so much good work that's happening there that, that it goes unseen. And if you're just asking people to join your team because you have righteous indignation, you'll get some people to join you. But if you actually show them, look at what you're missing if with the system built like it is. Look at what doesn't get valued even though we say we value it, if the system and the structure is maintained as it is. I'm trying to do that in higher education through my field of queer studies, because I think you have to start making change where you're at. At least I do. I'm not very good at thinking about theoretical change and, and arguing yeah. for broad. I, I think we have to talk to people where we're at. And so that that's how I hope the book can be useful to people, even when where they're at isn't where I'm at. Well, you're doing a form of, you know, taking your term queer fairing, um, not only um between queer studies programs, but from higher education into the broader, um, the broader society. I mean, you should write the afterword to my book and just say that exactly. Okay, thing. yeah, <laughs> next time, next time, yeah. And you're on your next book, Matt. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. I will. I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, um, believe it or not, we've come to the end of the hour, and um, I still have so many questions I'd love to ask you, but it's 
it's best that I don't because it's going to really encourage our listeners to go out and get your book. Um, and I just want to thank you for joining me today. I, I can't thank you enough for, um, for thinking about the book and reading it and, and giving me this chance to, to share it with other people. Thanks so much, John. Oh, yeah, great. You're welcome. And to our listeners, if you're interested in reading Poor Queer Studies, you can click on the highlighted title of the book in the description included with this podcast. And of course, you can also go directly to the Duke University Press website. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.